Father, your greatness is revealed to us day by day. Lord, I have come to believe that my relationship with you and the closeness of it is almost determined by how great I think you are. Lord, you are majestic. A name above all names. And Lord, the praise that we offer to you is because you are worthy. And as we look into your word this morning, we will only see more of your glory. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who he is, the work that he has done in our behalf. We pray that we would live lives worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I, I, I've been struck by similes uh, over the past week. A simile is a uh, figure of speech in which two unlike things are explicitly compared. So, for example, uh, Grandpa had a mind like a steel trap, only one that had been left out in the rain too long. Rusted shut, right? Grandpa's uh, brain here is, uh, is compared to a, a steel trap, but one that is, is, is rusted. Uh, how about these? He's as mad as a hatter. She slept like a log. My daughter's cute as a button. And Dan, where you at? Dan's cool as a cucumber. And when I was young, I was fast as a cheetah. And when Barbara's upset, <laughs> her eyes are seafoam green. <laughs> She's as busy as a bee and cute as a kitten. <laughs> Similes. We, we know them. In fact, we... We've been taught them since we were about six years old. And even before six years old, we knew how to use them. It's just something that's built into us. They're simple. But are they? Charles Dickens, when describing vision, used a simile. He said, it is like a picture impossibly painted on a moving, on a running river. Simile, that simile in particular, conjures up a, a depth of, of feeling and a depth of understanding as opposed to someone saying, well, he's, he's tall as a skyscraper. Okay, that means, okay, so the person is tall. But this kind of simile explaining vision and the impossibility of explanation, uh, it, it touches the vicissitudes of life, the flowing and ever-changing nature of it, and ultimately leaves us short of words. So welcome one and welcome all to the book of Revelation. The land of simile. In our passage this morning, we have uh, a minimum of eight of them. There might be uh, more. But in order to understand them, like Dickens, it requires thoughtful uh, reflection. 
Because for a simile to be effective, you have to actually understand the two things that are being compared. If you don't understand the one or the other, then you'll go, what? What, what, is, what does that mean? And it's something that, because we're so far distant, removed from John and his writing, we have to do a little explaining. But it's okay, we'll be able to do that. Because the primary use of a simile is to create emotion in the person. And so if that understanding is missing, uh, you, don't, you don't get it. I heard on the... Uh, uh, news, obviously, in jest, and that's why I used my simile that Barb was cute as a kitten, is because apparently if you look at kittens at play, like on YouTube or something, it will make you feel better. And if everybody in the world was able to look at kittens at play every day, we would have no more war, so we're told. But more than just an emotional uh, thing that we, we get, sometimes similes are used like, like John used because he's trying to describe something that's simply indescribable. I had an entire, uh, it was 20 years old from my life experience and uh, illustration here, and I tossed it out because last night after college and beyond, uh, Melvin uh, let Casia, Barbara, and I look at a thing called an oculus. That's rather foreboding sounding, isn't it? Oculus. Where's Kim on? Oculus, right? It's eye. Something to do with the eye, right? And so what you have is, is this, uh, it's like a headset. And so uh, some folks for the place where uh, Melvin uh, works with, with NASA, they put together a space station video that you could view through the, the uh, Oculus. And so it's something that actually is impossible to accurately describe. Is that right, Barb? So it's, it's quite dizzying, in fact. So I looked at it uh, after Casia, and so we decided... Uh, in concert that Barb would sit down while she watched it because it, it was like being in the cinema only without the cinema. It was like walking on air or, or like floating in space. It was like Grandpa's brain being fully present, but <laughs> yeah, with no boundaries at all. Forget the steel trap. It left me entirely tipsy like a sober mayfly. <laughs> Some of you might get that later. Mayflies. Okay. That's when they're sober. So the point is, is that I really can't describe what I saw, and yet I'm the one who saw it. John was describing something for which he had no previous experience, save for perhaps one moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. But so much so that as we look at these uh, similes that we're trying to figure out, when we see them from the standpoint of the mind, from our thinking, instead of our emotion, they're not actually fulfilling their entire 
design. Yes, it is of the mind, but it's also of the motion. They are designed to touch our mind and our heart. So in our text today, there are eight similes. And I'm not going to take each one apart, but we are going to look at each one of them and uh, what those things mean. So therefore, turn with me uh, in our process of discovery to Revelation chapter 1, the book of Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. So beginning there, we read, I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we immediately see John introducing himself to his readers and to us as simply, John, your brother. He did not say, you know, I'm John the Apostle, or I'm John the Elder. I come to you speaking with authority. No, that's all pushed aside. Because what he's saying here is when you are in the context of the heavenly realm, when you are there, the fact that you're an apostle or an elder is meaningless. What matters is that we're in the family of God. He could have done that, but that's not what he did. He said he was a partaker with us in three things. That's not only for them in the past, but that's also for us Today, first, tribulation. Now, this first use of the word tribulation, and we'll find different meaning uh, later in uh, other texts, this is a a reference to the trouble that we all experience. 
So this is the tribulation that we all go through, kind of uh, a la Matthew 20. Second, they share in the kingdom, the present kingdom and the kingdom that is to come. And third, they persevere. They remain steadfast in the midst of that affliction. And that's the broad way of looking at all the other suffering that we endure. So John was on this island called Patmos because of the witness uh, uh, that he had given to the gospel. It wasn't primarily to receive the revelation. John did not have to be on Patmos to receive this revelation from Christ. It just happened that that's where he was and God chose to give it to him there. That one of the little lessons that we can take home uh, from this text here is that God will give us, if we have eyes to see, God will give us good things in the midst of our troubles. John had been exiled. He had been the pastor at Ephesus for many years, and they exiled him to this island, which is just off the coast there. And he was in his 90s when he experienced this, this hardship. And it's, it is difficult as we look at this for many people because they say, here's a man who was close to Christ as any man ever was, and he spent his life in nothing but service to God. And yet, towards the end of his life, here he was, exiled, suffering, in pain, and in trouble. Even though we know that, you know, life involves pain, the Scripture tells us that life involves pain, we tend to think, Lord, he spent his whole life doing nothing but good. And, and this is what comes to him. But then we immediately comfort ourselves and we say, yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. But he was an apostle, right? And that was their lot. That's, that's an apostle's lot. So, okay, that's, that's, that's good. But what about when that applies to us? What about when we say, Lord, Lord, I have done nothing but serve you. I have done nothing but read your word and pray every day. And now you bring this to me in my life. What did I do wrong? Did I miss your calling? Am I in the wrong place, the wrong time? Do you actually care? I mean, aren't right? We're looking for something back from him. And we all do this. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it is something to be aware of that sometimes we are actually serving God so that he will protect us. We're not serving him because of who he is and the fact that he is worthy of our service. And I'm going to go out on a limb. It's not, it's a, actually, it's a very strong limb. But some of you might be on the Isle of Patmos right now, metaphorically speaking. 
Maybe it's the Patmos of disrupted relationships. Maybe it's the, the Patmos of a failing body. Maybe it's the Patmos of a financial downturn or a career downturn. Maybe it's some kind of the Patmos where your children won't communicate with you. Maybe it's the Patmos of seeking new life in your marriage. We're sojourners together here. And it is here and in that sense that we are all with Paul on Patmos as brothers and sisters. There is little place for judgment. We need to dedicate ourselves as John did to partner with one another, to encourage one another. Last Thursday, I was able to hear a verse, which I'll say later, but which inspired in some ways me to put this verse in the message where the writer of the Hebrews says this, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We should be being driven together, close together and support one another and the thing to walk away from this little part is it's not the Patmos that you're on. All of the ones that I listed, and there are many more. You, you know your own personal one. But it is who is on Patmos with you. Jesus Christ is with us in our sufferings and in our difficulties. If you look for the Lord to reveal himself to you there, he will. He will anyway. You just may not see it. But John was there and he was in pain and he was suffering. But he says that he was in the spirit on that day. Well, that caused me to ask some questions here because which day? Now, something you may not know but what do we refer Sunday as? Somebody shout it out. The Lord's Day. Where'd that come from? Not in the Bible. The apostles didn't use it. It's a post-apostolic way of referring to Sunday. The Bible always refers to it as what? The first day of the week. That is the day after the Sabbath. Okay? So you end up with this thing where you look at it, you start looking at what the translators say. Well, what do translators say about this? Well, they say this. They say, yeah, you know what? You can translate it either way. Either what way? Well, either the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. Now, those are two different things entirely. If you're talking about the first day of the week, and most translators believe that all of this was in the past. None of this is in the future. So their decision is going to be to say, well, it was Sunday. So he was in the spirit on a Sunday when this happened. I prefer... Not dogmatically so, but I prefer to see this 
as the day of the Lord. It's the only construct like this in the entire New Testament. The day of the Lord, and if you translate it that way, what you would say is, I was carried, or I was projected, or I was born by the Spirit to the day of the Lord. In other words, this wasn't a normal day. This where, where John went was into glory, into heaven, in the Spirit. And in verse 10, as soon as he got there, he heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. That's our first simile. Now, trumpets aren't a real part of our daily life in America. And, you know, you struggle to find out, well, what's, what's the simile? But, but trumpets are, are there to either announce something, they're there to communicate something. So here was the voice of the Lord sounding like a trumpet designed. A trumpet is designed in the military especially to communicate something. A trumpet tells you when to wake up. A, a trumpet tells you when to go to sleep. A trumpet tells you when to eat. A trumpet tells you when to retreat, when to attack. All of these things. This was a communication designed for communication. We already saw that. We saw that in the first part of the book where this book is designed for you to hear it being read and to understand what it, what it means. And the voice commanded him to write down what you see and to send to the seven churches. So, John, like any of us would be, in our curiosity and, you know, probably fear, turned around to look to see the voice, i.e. see the person where the voice was, was coming from, who had given him the commission to do this. Now, it's, it'll do well for us to focus here in this text just for a little bit, and even after today to read it and reread it and read it again, because this is one of the only physical descriptions in all of literature where we're giving an accurate portrayal of how Jesus looks. And John is stunned. So when, G when John turned, he saw seven golden lampstands, which is reminiscent of a, a menorah. Was it a menorah? We, we have no idea. But you had the seven, you had the seven lampstands out there. And then he saw the person. Now, you need to go down to verse 17 in order to get the full impact of this. Because what was written immediately after what he saw and he described, he wrote that after he recovered his senses. Because the very first thing that happened in verse 17 was I fell at his feet as though dead. It says, as soon as I saw him. So the instant he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, his knees buckled and he went down. This is very similar, I believe, to what happened to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. His knees were wobbly for three or four days. You know, uh, as a military chaplain, one of the more painful things that I 
had to do was conduct uh, too many death notifications. And perhaps you've experienced this in another context. I trust not the context that I'm speaking of now. But when your coping mechanisms all fail and you got nothing, your, your knees, your legs, they go. They go weak. Literally, you will go down. The best presentation of this that I have ever seen um, was in Saving Private Ryan. She couldn't stand up. She didn't get down on the ground because she wanted to. She couldn't. There are many painful stories that I could tell. But it had been 60 years or more since John had seen Jesus. Now, who, who was this John? John leaned on Jesus, right? When they would eat, he reclined on him. He put his head on his chest. Right? You have to understand what's called the triclinium to understand how they ate. But they ate on the ground in a U-shape, right? And... You know, so they would recline on pillows and on each other. You know, they didn't sit at a table with chairs. So the, the, the Last Supper, that didn't happen that way. There's no way that that was the way that that happened. But that's the John. John was so close to Jesus that the other disciples would ask John to ask Jesus their questions. We're talking about a familiarity that was exceeded by none. We're talking about John was the one to whom Jesus disposed of his final earthly duty from the cross when he put his mother, Mary, under John's protection and care. This is also the same John who had seen the resurrected Christ. He'd seen him, walked with him, for 40 days before he left, like Adam in the garden. But John had never seen Jesus like this. John, who among all people had the greatest familiarity with him, fell at his feet as though dead. Now, I'm all about Jesus being my friend. The Bible tells me he's my friend, but he's not my buddy. He is my friend, but he also is who he is. And that is indescribable. And when you see him and his glory, I think the same thing's going to happen. I'm not sure when they say every knee shall bow. You know, you could look at that in a couple of different ways. Their legs may just give out. No, I believe it's a willful bowing to him as king. But still, the thing is, is... Yes, Jesus is close to us, but he is still and remains the king. Now, I'm not trying to put distance between us and Christ. That's, that's not the point of this. I'm trying to, as best as possible, tell you what the word of God says about this. To give a fuller context to what it means that Jesus is our friend. John did his best. 
So what did John see that caused him to fall? When John turned to see, the first thing he saw were these uh, lamp uh, stands, these, these seven in whatever shape they were. All I can say is they must have been bright and magnificent because the Lord of glory was in their midst, and yet he didn't see that first. So this whole thing must have just been a radiant a radiant picture, but he saw this picture, and and one of the first thing that he notes is it had a this pic this person had a human uh, shape, was looked human, and he was clothed in a long robe, and he was standing among those lampstands. This is a description. He had this gold sash on. When you look at the particular words, and we don't have time to do that today, I invite you to do that on your own. But what you find here is that this first picture that he's describing is that of a priest, the high priest, when he is uh, doing his work, which, which speaks to us immediately of the priestly work of Jesus Christ. But there's more. He has... This uh, robe on, that's a special robe that goes all the way down to the, the, the feet. In fact, it essentially means uh, foot length. This robe that he has on, well, the people who wore those were royals. Royals. And also messengers. So we see here in the very clothing of Jesus Christ... His ministry as prophet and as priest and as king. But Jesus came the first time to die. That's the express purpose why he came. The day that we're looking at now, as we look towards his second coming, it will not be to die. It will be to rule. His hair was extremely white. It, it, here's a couple of more similes, right? It was like wool. It was like snow. The, those were the things as white as John could think of. In addition to that, we see that's how uh, Daniel, that Dan described last week, the Ancient of Days, his hair was white. His hair was white as snow. And when you track that down in Scripture, what you find is, is that's talking about two things primarily. One is purity. He's pure. He's holy. Holy, holy. The other is wisdom. He has all the wisdom of the ages in his holiness and also the dignity of age, which we've virtually lost in this country. Thinking about his hair, though, because right? what I want to do is draw kind of a comparison and contrast between the Lord in his glory and the Lord when he was on earth. Because I, I can't think of his hair without thinking of the night when he was betrayed and when they they plucked out his hair. I mean, they they there's two things that happened to Jesus with his hair. One was that they would pull him out individually. Other was they pulled it out in great patches. And he allowed it. 
this self-same one in glory for the joy set before him, you and me allowed this to happen. Verse 16 tells us that his face was shining as, as the midday sun. His face was shining, but the first time he came, it was caked with blood. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. Another simile. This is a reference to his piercing judgment, his omniscient understanding. I mean, on a day in the past, he stood before Pilate's judgment. But on this day, Pilate will stand before his judgment. And there is no hiding from his eyes. There is no dodging that we can do. He sees all. He knows all. That's frightening to many. But do not fear. Let me tell you something. You may not have thought of this. And if you have, I just want to remind you of it. That the sin that you might commit tomorrow, that you have no awareness of today, no intentionality today. He knew about that tomorrow's sin before the creation of the world. And he chose to save you just the same. Our Lord is an amazing, an amazing God. He knew and he still chose and predestined you who believe for eternal life. Bless, bless his holy name. I, I can, if we can just even for a moment grasp a single glimpse of how the angels without ceasing can say, holy, holy, holy. As far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west. So is the distance that he has cast your sins. He remembers them no more. But it's not simply that he knows what we do wrong. Get this. He also knows what we do right that nobody else knows. There are things that you do in service to God that are little noted or not noted at all. And this is where that passage in Hebrews is, is so beautifully written that the things done in private, the things done that no one knows, the Lord knows. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Yeah, he knows the things that we've done wrong, but he also knows the things that we've done in service to him. And he will not forget. He is the perfect judge. In verse 15, it says his feet look like bronze as the metal is being heated, right? It begins to 
it begins to glow in the furnace. Of the, we see that in Daniel, we see that in Ezekiel, we see that a lot in other places in the Old Testament. And this brass, it stands for, for strength. It stands for the immovable steadfastness of God. And this, this shining that you see there, this, this glittering, it's, it's, we would, the best we can do is say the, the speed of light, but when it comes to the, the glorified Christ, uh, I think that's slow. He is quick. He is quick. And He's mainly quick to ease our suffering and our pain. Those feet, to go back to His time on earth, those are the feet that walked on the water. Those are the the feet that that walked around the Galilee and the Decapolis and to Jerusalem and back. And those are the feet that were pierced for our sin. And yet now they're unstoppable, quite and fully unstoppable. And his voice, here you had the, there you had the trumpet, the first one we talked, but now his voice is like this, this uh, running, running water. Have any of you been to Niagara and gotten down... That is loud. You wouldn't think that water could make such a racket, but you can hear it from a great distance away. And so that's his voice again. Is like this water, namely when you're when you're when you're there and you can feel the vibration. You realize the tremendous power that is there and it's authoritative it's irresistible and in his right hand in 16 he the right hand the symbol of power and control he held these seven uh, stars and i believe here that they are and we'll speak to this uh, later as we move along but i believe that they're literal angels i mean john was not in the habit of using a simile or a metaphor to define a simile or a metaphor, you get lost. You would be completely lost. And so these are angels that are there to protect and to care. Regardless, the most important thing for us to draw here is that the hand of Christ is strong enough to hold the churches, to include this church in His right hand but tender enough where one day He is going to come to you. I don't believe this is passive and all of a sudden our tears will be just dried. Oh, tears are dried. It says He will wipe them. That may come along when He says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't know. But there's more to it than just simply no longer being sad the hand of Christ is strong and out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword now the word that's used here is specifically the Roman short sword that's the combat weapon that the Romans had then but this is interesting because it's not a simile he's using a metaphor here and the difference between a simile and a metaphor right is a uh, a simile is like or as, and a metaphor is is. 
So what would in the world would this mean? Well, it's easy for us to understand. We have the Word of God, but He is the Word of God. When He speaks, the only words that He speaks are the words of God. And His tongue is too, it's, it's a two-edged sword. It's a two-edged sword. We know from other scriptures how powerful the word is. He speaks the word of God. He is the word of God. It, you have the word of God. And did you, some of you remember this, and it depends on what kind of church you came from and maybe even age, but one of the first things, I was terrible, terrible. I was really bad at it. I still am. I mean, this morning in Breaking of Bread, somebody said, turn to Jonah, and I'm going, is that a book in the Bible? I mean, where, where in the world is that book? You know, it took me a while to find it. On the other hand, when a song was called out, Barb just opened the songbook to the right page. You know, how amazing is that? They were called sword drills. Do you remember sword drills? Yeah, some hands go up. Sword drills. Do you realize that the Bible is your sword. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. So this first vision of John, it includes Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king, his messianic office, judgment of the unrighteous, salvation and comfort of those, the righteous, those who have trusted him. It is his rank, as we'll see later, who he is that will allow him to employ divine wrath. It's his intelligence that enables him to perform this righteous judgment. It's his moral character. It's who he is, his authority. He is the, as he says, he is the self-existent one. The eternal one. The living one. You are alive right now. I am alive right now. The trees are alive right now. Jesus is alive right now, but he's more than alive. He is life itself. Our life comes only from the fact that he holds it together. Not only that, but he has the authority of life and death. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Worry not for the day of your death or another's. Those keys do not belong to Satan or some other power. They are firmly in the hands of Jesus Christ. And because of that, these Things that I have mentioned, there will come a day when every mouth will be stopped. You know, as you hear the description of Christ's voice, his voice alone will not allow for interruption. But there will be no need, as I mentioned before, because every person in heaven and hell, wherever, will bow the knee and cry out that Jesus does all things well. In closing, I want to just go back to that verse 17 
When John fell as though he was dead, Jesus, the glorified Christ, in all his majesty reached down, put his hand on him, touched him, and said, Fear not. The touch of Jesus put life back into John. He touched John. He will touch you. And I pray that today would be the day that he does, either in salvation or in healing, that his touch would be on you as you languish on whatever Patmos you may be. So I want you to hear this final thing. The touch and the voice of Jesus that we hear today is tender. It is soft. It is inviting. It is appealing and it is patient. But understand, that is not his only touch. That is not his only voice. There will come a day when both will combine in judgment. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today is the day that we must turn to him in peace and not wait a moment more. Father, I pray that even in the smallest way we've advanced our glimpse of your Son in glory and who he is and why we proclaim his greatness, his worthiness, his majesty, his beauty, his glory, his love for us, which is beyond any simile or any metaphor. All we can do is just simply receive and look to the day when we will be standing Maybe perhaps in the very audience that John was that day in real time. And strengthen us through your Son. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.